were here last week, we went over this slide. I know there's a lot of information in it. I'm going to go over it quickly again. If you want more detail, um, you can listen to last week's message. But the thing we have to understand about Isaiah, and really any of the prophets, is that the key to understanding them is that they're, they're basically sent by God, they're chosen by God for two purposes. Can you guys remember what those are? They're right up there. The first one is to foretell, and the second one is to foretell. To foretell is to accurately predict future events. And the reason for that is to give authority to what the prophet says. Hey, this guy knows what's going on. We should listen. Um, but then also to predict far events in order to bring hope to the people that are stuck in the middle of terrible situations. And then also to foretell. And this means to public, publicly speak God's truth. And so what's happening is these prophets are going in to the people of Israel or Judah, and they're comparing the action of the people, the reality, with the law and the covenant. All right? And last week we talked about the covenant, and this week we're going to talk about the law. And from that point, after comparing those things, the prophet is to profess a ruling. You see, we, we give a, a bad name to these prophets. These guys just come in and rip apart the people, but really all they're doing is professing a ruling on behalf of God. And so when you look at that first one, covenant, we hear it in the New Testament as love God and partner with him to do the second part, justice, which is to keep the law, to love each other. And so this week, um, we, uh, last week, we focused in on that covenant piece to understand that God is a covenant God and that we are a covenant people. And this week, we're going to focus in on just the last piece uh, there, the law, and how we are to love each other. Now, we've already gone through this a little bit. We've talked about reconciliation. We've talked about justice. And these are super, super important pieces. But honestly, if we don't understand what Isaiah is talking about when he uses the phrase that's translated into English, the law, we're going to miss out big time. And so I really want to focus in on this today. And just as I did last week, um, I know many of you are visual learners. Uh, we all learn in different ways. And I, I find these videos that the Bible Project has put out very helpful. And so I'm going to start with a, a, a video on the Bible Project um, doing the summary of the law. And you can kind of take that and see us break down even more detail of that in the teaching. So let's go ahead and watch that now. You're most likely, you're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first 10. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law. Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. So some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. 
Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention, because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Yeah, don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land. They break all the laws. Right. Now... The next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law.
if you are interested in watching that again or any of their other videos, that's their website there. And uh, I'm very thankful to them for the work they're doing. Well, many of us as Christians, I think, um, when we hear this topic of the law, we become slightly confused. Imagine being a non-believer in a world where on the news you see the Christians fighting uh, for having the Ten Commandments placed at the local courthouse and stating that we are a people that fight for the law. And then going to work and being spoken to by your Christian friend who says, we are not under the law, we are only under grace. Confusing? Yes. How about the teenager who goes to a parachurch organization and hears a wonderful presentation of the gospel that is true, that we are under grace. And then they come to a church like ours where we teach not only the grace, but the cost that goes along with that. And they hear that we are to grow in holiness and they walk away depressed and sad because they think, I'm confused. Which is it? Do you follow the law or do you not? And this is something that I've run into a lot as a pastor. There is a confusion in us that does not stop at the non-believer. And so what I want to do first here is I want to clear up the confusion of the law. I think that one of the reasons we stay away from some of the Old Testament books is because we are confused about this topic of, and imagine me doing air quotes every time I say this from now on, the law, okay? That way I won't be doing this every five minutes, but the law, okay? Uh, We are confused about this topic. And we read the words of the New Testament, and there are some passages that, don't lie, you're just like me, for many years you've glossed over them, moved by them, because you've said, well, Jesus must not understand what he's talking about. Let me give you a few of those. You can just write down the address when we get there. Here's the first one. This is Jesus in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to, you, uh, uh, say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at 1 John here. These are the words of 1 John from chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God. In essence, he's saying this is how we know we're saved, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. What? John, what are you talking about here? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Even one of our primary passages that we've based the vision of this church off of, and I think that should be the vision of all churches in the kingdom, is Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, we're with you, Jesus. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, we live in an environment and in a world where it's no longer supposed to be preaching or teaching. No, Hans, it's supposed to be a discussion. We're supposed to have a discussion. 
Because it's not about being taught. It's not about preaching. It's about all of us coming to an agreement as to what we believe. No, guys, we are to learn what God has commanded us. And he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this can lead to two very polarizing factions on this spectrum of responses. One of them is the group of people, the community of faith that says, oh, no, we must do all the Mosaic law. Let's do all of it. We have to start and work through all of it in order to be saved. And there's many of those communities in Salem uh, that, that say that you have to follow the Torah explicitly. As I'm going to show you, that is not what God is saying here. Uh, the second end of the spectrum is those that state it all must be thrown out due to the supposed hypocrisy. Many of the non-believing community make fun of the Christian text because they say, oh, uh, you can't eat shellfish? You can't uh, dress with two types of fabric? Well, all you Christians are hypocrites, so let's throw out that and all the rest of the laws. But as you hear these words of Jesus and John, I want to ask you a very simple question. Okay, this is question and answer time. Get prepared here. Ready? Simple yes or no. Does it sound to Jesus and John like we are no longer under the law? And see, that's the confusion. There's a few of you that said no strongly, but the rest of you go, I don't really know. I'm confused. And so I want to clear this up because the answer is, is are we still under the law? Brace yourselves. You might run out screaming. Yes. We are under a law. Notice I said a. We are not under the law, air quotes, the law. We are not under the Mosaic law. Now, what am I saying? Am I going against all of the teaching of historical Christianity about grace? Absolutely not. What we need to realize and first understand when we read most of the Bible is that when the Bible says the law, because of our lack of words in the English language, a lot of times it's not talking about the same law. It's not necessarily talking about the Mosaic law. We covered this a bit when we went through Romans. But this is the big point. You can write this down. There is a more foundational law of God than the Mosaic law. There is a more foundational law of God than the Mosaic law. And what I would uh, submit to you is, is that law can be titled the law of faithful or covenantal love, the law of trust. See, we see this reflected throughout Scripture. You can think of Jesus. And remember those uh, couple of times where Jesus did things on the Sabbath that he wasn't supposed to. He healed a man with a withered hand, and everybody erupted, and they said, you can't do that. This is the Sabbath. That's work. And Jesus responds and says, wait a minute, is it against the law to do good on the Sabbath? He, in essence, said, I care more about the person than I do about the law. Another time, he's walking through the grain fields, and some of his disciples pull off some of the grain and begin to, to eat it because they're hungry. And some of the Pharisees that are tracking them down like dogs say, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's work. It's the Sabbath. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And what I say is the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. He cares about the person more so than he does about the law. Is Jesus just a rebel? Is he the latest to trend in hipster pa pastors who wants to throw away the law and step in and give a new idea of the grace of God? No, not at all. In fact, he perfectly fulfills the laws. 
His answers when he's questioned about this speak to an underlying system of rule, of law, in which it is lawful to do good over and above what these laws, people think these laws are saying. God's law is about loving the person. Take a look here at Matthew 23. If you're not already there, Matthew 23, 23. And Jesus is woeing, okay? Whenever Jesus woes, it's not a good idea, all right? He's woeing the Pharisees, not wooing, woeing. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, who are the scribes and Pharisees? They were the best of the best when it came to understanding the law. They were the A++ students in seminary. They were the ones that understood everything. They went home and they started to break apart their, their herbs even. They would take their herbs and they'd say, uh, one for God, nine for me. One for God, nine for me. Can you imagine doing that with your pepper shaker? You'd be there forever, right? But that's what these guys did. And he goes to them and he doesn't say to them, cast aside everything you've done. No, look at what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. These experts at keeping the Mosaic law were not told to remove their practices. They were told, wait a minute, you're, you're missing the foundation piece of it. When we say something is weightier, we mean that sinks to the bottom. That is the ground piece. And he's saying you're missing all this because you're doing all this on top of it. Guys, it's no different than in our contemporary society, being a person who carries a big Bible, goes to uh, every event we can that's Christian, uh, only listens to Christian music on Caleb, only watches Christian movies, uh, only, um, you know, does certain things, but deep down inside your heart, you know that you're neglecting the very commands of God. Outwardly, you have signs that you are this holy person, this Christian, but in reality, you're neglecting the heart and the base of what Jesus is talking about. And so our conclusion in looking at these uh, texts and many others is that there must be, there must be another more foundational law of God to which the law of Moses was added, one that is based on mercy, justice, and love of fellow man. And this is huge, guys, because this is exactly what we see in Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah, and we're going to camp out there for a second. Go to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, and take a look at verse 3. This is speaking of what's called the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, when Jesus fully, fully rules and reigns over his people and the earth is brought to shalom, to wholeness, to peace. And it says at that time, Isaiah 2, 3, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, some of your, your translations might have may go the teaching or the instruction. And the reason is because the Hebrew word there for law is Torah. And Torah means instruction. It means law. It means something that you hear and you obey. Okay? 
So does it sound like the law is present in the midst of Jesus' reign? Absolutely. Okay, Hans, you're confusing me even more. Well, let's go to Isaiah 5.24. Isaiah 5.24. Look at what it says there. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down to the flame, so their root, he's speaking here of Judah, their root will be rottenness and their blossoms go up like dust. For they, God's people, have rejected the law, the Torah, of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Okay, Hans, what you're talking about here, he obviously is speaking of the Mosaic law. So they haven't done all the stuff they're supposed to do, keep their Sabbaths and their new moon festivals and all of their sacrifices and all the things that are written in that book of Leviticus that uh, we hate to read through in our private devotions because it makes no sense, right? Everything there. Well, is he talking about that? No. Turn back with me to Isaiah 1. We've covered this a bunch of times, and we're going to keep looking at it. The fact is, is that when Isaiah speaks in chapter 5 that the people weren't following the law of God, it's that they weren't following that underlying law of love that we're talking about. Because interestingly enough, they were following the the Mosaic tradition. They were doing the things that Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers all spoke that they were to do. Okay, take a look there at chapter 1, verse 10. We've gone through this before, but it's super important. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Good thing or bad thing to be called Sodom? Bad. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Good thing, bad thing? Bad thing. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Were they good at giving sacrifices? Oh, yeah, multitude, right? Okay, that's not small. When I go to, you know, McDonald's and I say, give me a multitude of Big Macs, that means a lot, right? (laughs) Right? You guys have all seen, uh, um, who's the guy with the mustache? Help me out here. Uh, Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec. Ron Swanson, right? He goes in the restaurant and he says, I need all of the bacon, the multitude, right? And he stops the guy before he leaves and he says, no, no, I think you misunderstand. When I say I want all the bacon, I mean all the bacon, okay? That's what he's talking about here. Now, they weren't using bacon. That would not be kosher, all right? But they were a multitude of sacrifices, He says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of ram and the fat of well-fed beasts. Man, they were spending time to raise up their 4-H cows to go take them and sacrifice them. They were doing everything they could. He says, I don't delight in it. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Did they show up at church service on, on the Sabbath? Absolutely. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. There it is again, the multitude. I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. There's that word, learn. We have to be taught what it is to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. 
And again, we go into this text. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I have heard so many pastors mishandle this text. Because this text in context is saying, learn to obey and then your sins will be forgiven. That's what that text is saying. This is not taken out of context to only speak of grace. Yes, grace is required, as we will see, just stick with me, in order to be obedient. But what this is stating is, once you are in relationship with Yahweh, learn to do his will, his heart, and then your sins will become like snow. See, the fact is, is that, yes, they were practicing the Mosaic tradition, but no, they were not practicing the law of God. It was the law of love, practicing redemption, justice, and mercy, those things that truly reflected his character. You can write this point down next. It reflects his character because God's law of love is a reflection of his covenant faithfulness. His covenant faithfulness. Last week, we discussed the covenant faithfulness of God, his chesed, his faithful love to us. All the story of the law is based on that character and on displaying that character to the world. You might say, Hans, what was the point of giving the Mosaic law to just confuse everybody? Well, we're going to read a text here in a second that tells us what the point was. The point was very simple. It was to protect the people from the world around them, make a special people that would be a witness on behalf of God, and hold them just tightly enough that from them could come the Messiah that would give us the fullness of obedience, the fullness of God's grace. It was God trying to take his people out of the world and use them in a way that would send them. So some of the weirdest laws that we see in there, why not wear two types of fabric in the same clothes? Because God didn't want you joining up with the people of the world. Why not plant your field with two types of seed? Because as we've seen, you're either of your father, the seed of the devil, or your father, the one in heaven. Which seed are you? Don't combine with another type of seed. Why on earth would he have this weird thing where every seven years you have to forgive debt? Well, because it's a picture of the way that he treats us, that he forgives us our debt. Everything in the law was painted or was to paint this idea of God being faithful in his covenant love for his people. Let's go to Deuteronomy, and we're going to camp out there for a little bit. Go to Deuteronomy 6, and you'll see what I mean. Deuteronomy 6.20. This answers the question, why? Why do we have all these crazy laws? It says in 6.20 of Deuteronomy, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statues, statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son. Anybody else get a heart check there? How many of us teach our children the law of God? You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. Redemption. Freedom. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh. Who were they? The enemy 
The slave owners, the oppressors, is that a good thing that he did that or a bad thing? Good thing. Before their very eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. What a great, great statement. God brought us out to do what with us? To bring us in. He took us out of the world to bring us in, and he said to give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to do what? To fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. You see, for that day, for that time, surrounded by the cultures they were surrounded by, those laws were protective. They were loving They were not setting the people up to fail as so many of us believe. See, everything that he stated as far as his laws, he would repeat over and over. You can go read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. He always started or finished with, I am the Lord, your God, who did what? Brought you out of Egypt. See, the Lord is the one who has freed us from oppression. The story of the law doesn't start with law. It always starts with God's grace. It always starts with God's gracious love that we have not earned. We have not uh, done something that makes us better than the rest in order to, to make us important to God. It's always been out of his voluntary, gracious love. Why did God choose them and love them? Take a look down at chapter 7, verse 6. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This is verse 6 of chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for what? His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to the fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. Wow, that sounds pretty harsh. Does it really? A God who is infinite love, who's laid down everything to draw people to him. That option is there for people, and it is their willful rebellion against that love that says, I want nothing to do with you, and he says, okay. That's the God that we serve. And now, because of this, in this context, what does he call his people to do? To just exist? No, to respond Look at Deuteronomy 6.4, a little bit earlier. You guys all know this really well. And this is one that, yes, you should be teaching it to your kids, even though it's Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he goes on to say, these are the words that I command you and that you should teach across all events, all situations, all settings. He calls us to respond with willing obedience to a gracious, sovereign king and the love that he's given us. And this is what sets us apart in true righteousness. 
The fact that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, has loved us, not because we love him, that's simply the response, but because he has loved us and drawn himself to us. That's the thing that sets you apart. It's not the Bible you carry, the movies you watch, the music you listen to. It's that God is near to you and he loves you. Look at Deuteronomy 4. Look at Deuteronomy 4, 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. See, the Jews would become a people that would think that they were known for all of their quirky laws that they had to keep. But look at what God, through Moses, tells them in Deuteronomy 4, 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking. That you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, they won't say, cool laws, right? No, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your souls diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. And then he tells them about the receiving of the law. A God so near to the people Now, in our mentality, in our context, in our society, we can very much quickly turn this into God, the genie in the bottle that we can call on. He's near to us, which means my life should be one of ease and comfort. But see, the witness that they were to have was not in their ease of life. Let me say that again. The witness that they were to have was not in their ease of life, but in their relationship with God. We wrongly base our legitimacy, our acceptance, our love, or the fact that we are lovable upon whether or not our life has ease and comfort and how wrong this is. For it is in the fires of trial and pain, defeat, discomfort, conflict, brokenness, all of these that the covenant faithfulness is forged in a relationship. I see this all the time in marriage counseling. If we were doing it right, our life would be easier. No, 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 no. As I've said before, the way you fight is whether or not you have a successful marriage. Fighting is just going to happen. And this is the way in any relationship, even our relationship with God, we cry out to God and we ask in cases, God, why do you not love me better? Why is my life not in the expectations that I had set before? Why do I not have this setting in life or this kind of physical material gain? And he responds and says, I actually love you so well that I have literally borne your brokenness and carried your griefs. And I've literally gone to hell and back for you. Dear brothers and sisters, do not mistake ease and comfort for God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is what carries us through the times of trial and tribulation. And so in reality, obedience to the law of God comes down to this, trusting that God is and always will be faithful to us. 
and willingly submitting our lives in grateful response to his law of love. See, when God tells us that the life we are to lead is a certain way, we respond to it because we know he's faithful and good, and what he calls good, we must also. And many of us get caught in this trap where we start to call things bad that he calls good. And in doing so, we remove our trust from him, and we start to become our own God, deciding our own life. Now, how do we do this? What are our examples? Well, the easy one is Jesus, and we'll get there in a minute. We go to Jesus, and we see ultimate trust of the Father. We see ultimate obedience and submission. But I want to first ratchet it up just a bit, not get to that point of perfection for you. I want to show you someone else who's more in our league, Abraham. Abraham was not perfect by any stretch. Uh, You read the stories and you think, as uh, Ian told our young adults group, what a dirtbag. And it's true. There are points where Abraham, man, he is a dirtbag, okay? But the reality is, is I can identify with that. Anyone else identify with the dirtbags in the Bible, right? Yes? Okay. The rest of you are all holy. That's fine, okay? But look at what it says in Genesis 26. Let's go to Genesis, and we're going to camp out there for a minute. Genesis 26, 5. Twenty six five. Abraham, forgive me when I see you in heaven. I'm sure that will be awkward. <laughs> Look at what it says in, in Deuteronomy twenty six five. Let's start in verse four though. It says, "I will multiply your offspring." He's saying this to Isaac now, the son of Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to you offspring, uh, to your offspring, all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, that's hearkening back to the blessing that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12. We'll look at it in a second. Why does he do this? Look at what he says here. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Say what? What you talking about, Isaac? This does not make sense. But in fact... He did. See, what I'm going to give you right now is what I think God calls us to. I think Abraham is the one that we're associated with in the New Testament as well as the father of faith, but it's not just faith. His faith worked itself out in a few different ways. I want you guys to write this down because I think this is what God is calling us to. There are two types of righteousness. There's a righteousness that is completely and utterly foreign to us. It is alien to us. We cannot gain it on our own. And that is the righteousness that brings us into complete unity with God the Father. But there's another righteousness that works itself out in this fancy term we call sanctification, where we take that love, take that grace that God has freely given us in that covenant commitment, and we walk it out and respond to it in loving God. And what we see Abraham doing is we see him doing that before the Messiah was ever on the scene, before Jesus ever came along. So what was it he did? Well, the first thing I want you to look at is that he was loyal to Yahweh above all other gods. Okay, and this is something we must do as well. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Loyal to Yahweh above all other gods. Now for us, we think, well, this isn't really a big problem. We don't have a ton of gods in the United States, all right? Well, I will tell you right away, guys, that it's not only the gods I've talked about before of lust and sex and greed and materialism, but it's the gods that we call Jesus. Jesus the Republican, Jesus the Democrat. I won't go there. Um, I want to, but I won't. Uh, We call him Jesus the Nationalist, Jesus the American. 
These are not Jesus. We create Jesus, as I've talked about before, in a way that reflects our opinion rather than his. And what Abraham did is he walked into the middle of a people that were not followers of Yahweh and said, I'm going to follow Yahweh. Now, question for you, in that day and age, what did that usually do for you? That get you a lot of friends? No. Usually you got killed. Why? Because if you truly believe in that culture that the God you serve, let's call him the God Fred, okay? Let's say Fred is the one who is the God that provides everything. And you know that Fred is pretty persnickety. He needs total obedience from his people. And so you want your crops to be blessed and you want to have children. And so you say, Fred, I'm going to worship you and I'm going to make sure that nobody else does anything that's going to upset you because I know you can be upset pretty good, right? It's kind of like how we tend to view God, which is actually wrong, right? And so then somebody trucks in and throws up an altar and says, I'm going to worship somebody that is completely contrary to Fred. You think that's going to make Fred happy? Nope. So what would you do? For the good of your crops and the good of your family, you would kill that person. It was gutsy to worship a different God. Take a look at Genesis 12, verse 6. Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Did the Canaanites worship Yahweh? Yes or no? No. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him And from there, he moved on throughout the land of Canaan. He worshiped Yahweh as opposed to all other gods. In other words, he sacrificed to only one God. All his time, talents, treasure, everything went to that one God and all others faded away. Was he perfect in this? Absolutely not. But that was the trajectory he was headed on. Secondly, he trusted in Yahweh's faithfulness. Turn with me to Genesis 15. Now you might say, really? Did he? Well, let's look at the text here. Look at what it says. Don't read things into the text. Look at what the text says. Genesis 15, verse 2. He's talking to God, and God has told him that he's going to have all this offspring. And Abraham responds to him and says, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? He's not just being greedy here. He's saying, You're not fulfilling your promise, Lord. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Is it bad to wrestle with God? Absolutely not. He took it to God and he goes, God, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. And it's not lining up. Where are you? What's happening? Now look at how God responds. The word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And then he shows him the stars and he says, your children will be this many. And look at what verse 6 says. And he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him, which means he declared him righteous. Guys, we all struggle. We all wonder, God, why is life not lining up to my expectations? Why is this so hard And the second we get back to his word, the second we're uh, in fellowship with someone else, what is our response? No, I'm going to keep on driving that God doesn't understand me and God is making this hard and it's all his fault. No, we believe. We will be wrong, but when we're corrected, we believe. We trust in God because God is good. All we need is that reminder. Guys, if we could be a church that just constantly tells one another, I am so sorry. I know this is hard. but God is good. Not God is good and he's going to fix everything for you right now. No. 
No, that's not true. I know this is hard, but we can always rely on the fact that God is good. And we will see that over time. Third thing is to be obedient in righteousness. Be obedient in righteousness. Turn to Genesis 18 for me. In Genesis 18, this is the scene where God is going to send his angels down into Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, I need to stop and I need to talk with Abram and see what he says. Why does he do that? He says in Genesis 18, 18, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, the way of Yahweh. By doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham would be obedient in righteousness. Really, Hans? Abraham, obedient? I, that's, in fact, that's the opposite of what he seems in many of the stories. Guys, this is one of our biggest problems in American culture is that we think we're supposed to be perfect today. We think that salvation is a point in time. We think that we're supposed to understand everything as a point in time. I am 37. I've been studying this for over 15 years. I don't get this whole book. Do you? Some of you in here who I know have gone to the best schools and studied the word forever. You're still trudging through it as well. It is a process. And why God counted, it to righteous, counted to Abraham righteousness and said, you are righteous, is because of these things, that he was on a trajectory of following God. And in order to fill those gaps where Abraham did falter and fail, the most important piece of Abraham's, Abraham's righteousness is this. He was looking for a Messiah. He knew that he was not going to be perfect, that he was going to constantly struggle, grow, in the righteousness and holiness of God, learn his ways. But remember, Abraham had come out of a completely idolatrous civilization. Everything he was learning about Yahweh was completely new. And so he knew he had a growth curve. And so in 2214, you guys know the story well, he takes Isaac up to sacrifice him, something that only the pagans did, so he must have been completely confused. Lord, you say to not sacrifice your kids, and now you're telling me to sacrifice my, my child. And Isaac wasn't a child. He was most likely a teenager into somewhat grown adult. Uh, he was strong enough to carry a bunch of wood on his back. And they get up there to the top, and he says, Isaac, I need you to bind yourself up and, and lay down on, on the altar because I'm going to sacrifice you. Talk about awkward father-son moment. But both of them, because of their faithfulness to Yahweh, they were obedient in righteousness and said, yes, let's do it. And, and then at that crucial moment, God spares Isaac and says, wait, stop, Abram, now I know that you trust me. And he looks over and he sees a ram caught in the thorns and he pulls him out and he gives a sacrifice of that ram to God. And then in talking about it, at the end, he calls the name of that place, verse 14 of Genesis 22, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yireh. You guys have sometimes heard it, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord will be the one that gives us what? A lamb. Notice the future statement there. The lamb, the ram had already been provided. And this is a future tense statement. The Lord will provide. See, Abraham knew, Abraham knew that he was broken and that he was not fully faithful to God, but that God would cover his brokenness, 
And what he had to do was respond in these other ways to say, I want to follow you, I want to serve you, and I want to grow in that process. Well, luckily, that lamb, that Messiah came. And not only did he come to sacrifice himself, but you can write this down. Jesus taught, personified, and fulfilled God's law of love. I could spend years just showing you this in the Gospels, in the epistles. But the truth is, is that Jesus came and he taught, he called for learners, for disciples to continue learning his ways. That realize we are never done learning. We always have to be teachable and continue to grow in order to soften the hardness of our hearts. But he also personified it. The many pictures of Jesus healing, the many pictures of Jesus serving, Now, he did those same things as Abraham. Was he loyal to God the Father? Absolutely. Remember when he was tempted? What did he say? I'm going to worship the God alone. Was he obedient? Yes, the Bible says obedient even to the point of death. Did he trust the Father? Absolutely. Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Why? Because he knew that God is good and that he could trust him even though it didn't feel like it. He reached out in ways of justice and reconciliation. He took the abused, the objectified women, and freed them and called them sisters. He reached out to the lepers, those dismissed by society and put on the outskirts and took them to be his own. He brought them out so he could bring them in, and he brought them healing. He took the oppressed, and he set them free. He took the poor, and he raised them up in society, and he took the rich, and he said, you're rich so that you can serve. He did all of these things, and he loved his enemies. He looked at his main enemy, Judas, and he knew that he was not the enemy. The the enemy was Satan. And he said, do what you've come to do, my friend, and he gave him a kiss. Jesus personified in every way the true law of God, and yet he did all the Mosaic law as well, but he knew that the underlying law was love. And so this is why in Matthew 22, the scribe comes to him and says, What is the greatest commandment? Let's end all the arguments. Everybody's been debating it for years. What is it, Jesus? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the laws upon which all the law and the prophets are based. Jesus taught, personified, and fulfilled God's love. Rather than lifting himself up over the rest of the Jews as the Pharisees and the Sadducees had did by their holiness, Jesus became a servant to all, even washing the feet of his own disciples at the meal before his death. His very life personified his closeness with the Father. Not the laws that he kept, but people knew when they were around Jesus that they had been around the Father. Paul uses the same picture in the New Testament. He says that we are the stench of death to those that don't believe. But there's this odor on us that helps people to know who God the Father is. That we have this smell that is sweet to those who know the truth. That we have been with the Father. Why? Because love goes out and it emanates and it fills. And so when we look at what Paul said in Romans 13, 8, we understand it. Oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Well, 
wait a minute, Paul, what about all the Mosaic traditions? What about being good enough? What about earning God's love? No, he knows that none of that is true because to get the law, to receive the law from God means you're already in relationship with him. And so you then respond by fulfilling that law of love. So we, as Jesus' followers, ah, we are to be ones who live under the law of the sovereign king. Do we live under the, air quotes, law? No, we don't live under the Mosaic law. Do we live under the moral law? Absolutely, we could get into that debate. But here's the truth. What I want you walking out of here today with is this. You, as Jesus followers, you do live under the law of a sovereign king. Whether you want to believe it or not, whether you want to fight about grace or not, guys, this is the truth of the Bible. That's why I've thrown so much scripture at you today. We live under the law of the sovereign king, the law of love. Well, what happens when we break that law? What happens, Hans, when you might treat your wife or your children or maybe somebody in the congregation badly? I've broken the law of love. So what must I do in that moment? Repent and step back into the law of love and reconcile and replace what was lost by acting in trust. We're not going to be perfect at keeping the law. Raise your hand if you've ever gotten a speeding ticket. It happens. It happens. But do you obey? Do you Give restitution, pay what was wrong, and repent the next time I am not going to go through that stoplight like that. Absolutely. And so we live under a similar law, but it's not about stoplights and traffic lights. I'll leave that up to all the law enforcement officers in here. It's about the law of love, and we operate under that law of love. See, Jesus, as our sovereign king, he employs his rule across his domain, and those that are his subjects choose to learn and grow in submission to his rule, his law of love. Like Abraham, we are fighting through all of our own mistakes to grow in righteousness by the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to me that God uses the same language for two groups of people to tell us about this. You can write these uh, addresses down. I'm going to just go through them quickly here for the sake of time. The first one is in Exodus. Who's this speaking about? It's speaking about the Israelites, the chosen people of God. Now, therefore, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Well, Peter, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, comes along and he says, But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, not discuss, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are to be people that are followers of the king. We not only have his instruction in his word, but we have the implanted law on our hearts as we absorb this and pull it in and come and listen and are, are discipled and meet with one another and spend time in small groups. Why do we do all these things not to punch our ticket to say that we're holy or to pay back for the sins we've done during the week. This isn't penance. If it is, you should go somewhere where you enjoy church, right? The reality is, is what this is, is me as a fallen sinner 
who's been raised as a saint of God trying to teach you and help you understand what the law means, understand what the word of God is, and this is what we're doing. And so the Spirit convicts us through the word and through fellowship and inside of our hearts. It convicts us of sin and righteousness, truth and lies. And the question is, is are we submitting to his rule by trusting in his faithfulness and living lives that reflect his heart of justice and mercy? Now, you'll notice that there's two pieces to that. There's the trust in God that he is good, and there's the responding to it. Now, James, last place I'm going to turn you, James says this better than I ever could. So let's turn to James chapter 1, and this is where we're going to finish. I'm going to read a pretty good section of Scripture here. Sizable. But I want you guys to just simply listen. Write down the address, and I want you to listen. If you're a reader, uh, if you you learn by reading, feel free to read. But if you're a person who uh, learns by just listening, feel free to close your Bibles and just listen. And I want you guys to hear all of these things we've talked about today being pulled into James. One of the most interesting things to me about the book of James is that the Christian church struggled with it for years as to whether or not to include it in the canon. Why? Because they thought that it went against God's grace. But see, the reality is if you understand God's law and grace as we've discussed it today, it makes complete and total sense that it's in the canon of Scripture. So we're going to start in James 1.19, and I'm going to just read for a while, so just get comfortable and just listen, and then we'll finish up. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law. So speak and so act so those, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, referring to the great Shema? You do well. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I've heard this section taught many, many times, and I've heard it taught in this way, that because we can't keep all of the law, there's no use in trying. We just have to hope that Jesus covers it all. No, what he's saying there when he says, if you keep all of the law, the Mosaic law, but you're missing the whole point of the Mosaic law, loving the other, it doesn't matter how much law you keep. That's the point of this text. That we must be people that understand that what God is about is not rules and regulations, but the love of his creation. The love of him and love of the other. And he calls to us and says, guys, you cannot say freely that you love me and not act in love of others. As we enter into Isaiah and we see God's judgment on a people who claim to be his but refuse to show it in their love for one another, I think we might pause and ask ourselves as a church, ask ourselves two questions. The first one is, do I trust God? Do I trust God? Now, many of us might say, yes, of course, I'm a Christian. That's why I'm at church. But guys, do you trust him? Do you trust him to make sure that you get into heaven when all is said and done, or do you trust him? Many of us, we walk through life knowing that, yeah, he's got the golden ticket to get us into heaven when we die. That's great. In this life, I got to take care of myself because it's not working out how I wanted. Folks, that is not trusting in God. Do we trust him in the good, in the bad, in the ugly? And secondly, we must ask ourselves the same question that I think uh, those of Judah should have asked. Am I taking God's gracious love for granted 
or am I responding appropriately? Am I taking God's gracious love for granted? Or am I responding appropriately? Am I responding in adoration, in service, in relationships, in times and talents and treasure? Am I responding appropriately? Hopefully for many of us today, this is an encouraging word because we think, man, look at where we've been and where we're going and where we've come from. And yes, I feel that change in me, that, that holiness that's growing, not by my own work, but by the partnership between God's work on the cross that brings me into relationship with him graciously, freely, and my response that takes me on a path towards knowing him fuller and giving of him in my life. Hopefully, if that's you today, you are encouraged today because you go, wow, I am following the law and I didn't even know it. For others of us today, we need to ask these questions and we need to be convicted to our core because we need to be the people that are not coming to a body apart from the Spirit because if so, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. But we are coming to a body that is full of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And it's playing out in the way we respond to one another and the way we respond to those around us. That's my prayer for us today, that we would be people that by our works we prove our faith.